always good to hear from Pastor Dan. And always good to be with you guys. Uh, it's good to see you. Good job being here. You did real good. It's, it's going to be tough. Be tough. I mean, for instance, this morning I saw the sunrise. That's rare. I want to tell you that that usually only happens when I'm much closer to the equator. <laughs> you get a little extra sort of buffer there before the sun actually rises. So, uh, as uh, as much as I might feel myself annoyed at daylight savings as a concept, I did kind of feel good about the sunrise. That was all right. Uh, actually, usually the only time I ever see the sunrise is on senior trip. I teach uh, at Worthington Christian. I teach mostly seniors. I teach seventh graders and seniors, and that doesn't make any sense to anybody at all. But that's what I do. I teach seventh graders and seniors, and usually, uh, when all is right with the world, we go on a senior trip to the Dominican Republic, and the kids have this amazing capacity for waking up early on this trip. And we always go to the sunrise, and you know, we'll sing some songs and take copious pictures and just really enjoy it. And that's pretty much the only time of year I ever see it. So this, uh, this sunrise was uh, kind of conflicting for me. This is the week we would normally leave for the senior trip, and we canceled it because of COVID-19. This is our third year running, uh, canceling the trip. So there, you know, there's a certain amount of heartbreak with that. So I kind of felt like maybe the sunrise was a little bit of a gift for me this morning, uh, reminding us of uh, the rhythms of life that God has for us um, and these rhythms are built in. They're, they're on purpose. They are purposeful. Um, you know, the, the rhythm I get to experience every year is actually really good for me and my heart. Uh, sending these seniors out into the world uh, gives me a chance to take stock at how good God is on the, uh, the yearly basis, uh, celebrating what God has done in the lives of a group of people, what God has done in my life yet again. Uh, but every once in a while I get nostalgic. Uh, I'll start thinking about my own senior year. Um, and actually, this occurred, this, uh, I rem- remember this just the other day. Um, remembered uh, yearbooks, which we looked at them basically once and put them away. But uh, I remember looking through my own yearbook and seeing something that grabbed my attention. It was in the section with the superlatives, you know, we're like, most likely to succeed. Not me. Uh, most likely to PhD, not me. All those things. Uh, I did receive two. Uh, <laughs> I got two. Uh, one was most athletic. And you just have to remember, it's a, it was a small school. <laughs> don't, don't think too much of this. But they actually, I think, invented a category for me, which was most emotional. Uh, <laughs> I was... I was not at all happy about this. As someone who might get the most emotional award would be sort of emotional about getting it. I was like, not exactly pumped about this. But you can imagine a teenager whose worlds collided like that, athletics and emotion. Uh, you can imagine the storms that blew through my inner landscape regularly. Uh, you know, hanging on every moment of every athletic competition. I mean, every single one. And not even the ones that I was playing in. I mean, all of them. All of them. If the ball went in, uh, that, was, that was a good thing for at least 30 seconds, right? Because then you need the ball to go in again. And so, I, you know, you can, you can imagine the runaway train of identity this was for me. Like, just, just an absolute rock scramble, right? Like, the ball went in, good. Oh, ball didn't go in this time. This is not good. This is very bad. Uh, you know, so 
it, it was it was a journey. It was a journey. Uh, slow, slowly but surely, God unhitched me from that runaway train. Slowly but surely, uh, there was a story that was told over and over again in my life that God used to calm the storm in my life. It goes like this, the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created mankind, male and female, he created them in his image to bear his likeness. And it was evening. And it was morning. Every day was good. And on the sixth day, when he had finally put his image in the garden, he called it very good. And again, it was evening. And it was morning. And God said, I made you on purpose. I made you with a purpose. And then he said, let's rest together. The very first day of this very purposeful creation that they would enjoy together was a day of rest. You see, they used to walk together in the cool of the evening. The, the creation and the creator. Uh, the, the image bearers in the very image. They used to walk together in the cool of the evening and they used to, they used to rest together. They had the presence of God. But then, something started whispering in their ear. Something told them, you're not good enough as you are. Some said, you need, to, you need to keep striving. You need to keep going. So they chose striving over stillness. They separated themselves from the rest that was available to them with the presence of God. And they went chasing after the wind. God came down, though, again, in this rhythm of rest that he had laid out for them. And he said, where'd you go? He said, I didn't go anywhere. Where'd you go? Rest is available with me. What are you chasing after? And this ends with heartbreak. They end up east of Eden, moving away from the very rest in the home that was built for them, that they had been placed in on purpose. And it just kind of gets worse from there. It spirals downward. Like Martin Luther tells us, they curved in on themselves. He says, human beings are in curvatus. They're all twisted up inside. Because we keep chasing after the wind, yeah, this rock scramble of sin became uh, a prioritization of self to the degree that Cain struck down his brother Abel. Didn't feel secure, I guess, in his identity. Didn't feel like he could trust that it was secure. So God came down again. He spoke to Cain. <clears throat> and Cain heard these words that he would have to move further east. 
that, that he would be separated from God's presence. That, that, that this selfishness he had chosen couldn't, couldn't be in proximity, couldn't be in the presence of God. Cain says this. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. To, to be driven from your presence, to move even further east, to be, to be postured away from you. And Cain says this, I'll be restless. He says, I'll be a restless wanderer. And so we find out in Genesis 4, 16, that Cain went out from God's presence and moved eastward, east of Eden. And you know how the story goes. It keeps spiraling. Chapter 6, we find out that the whole earth is full of violence. What Cain had initiated was begat a thousand times over as violence begets violence. And so these people were scrambling something fierce. Didn't know where to take up roots. Couldn't find home anymore. Didn't know where it was. They actually move even further east. We find out by the time we get to chapter 11 of Genesis. It says as the people moved eastward, they moved out to this plain of Shinar. And they said, let's work. Let's start to build some bricks. And maybe we'll build a, a tower in the city. And maybe if we can do this, maybe we can have a name. They said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's have an identity. So they kept chasing after the wind. Hoping maybe someday they would inherit it, not knowing it wasn't worth inheriting after all. And again, and again God spoke. When God creates, he speaks. He says something about the situation his creation had found themselves in. He speaks and he says to Abraham, no. That's not how it goes. That's not how this is going to go. You're not going to go chasing after the wind. You'll not find what you're looking for there. Postured away from me, east of the garden. He says, listen, come with me. I'll show you where home is. I'll be with you. And he speaks these words, and they ring out in history. Where God says, I can lead you home. I will give you rest. No more striving. No more work. No more rat race. Rest here with me. I'll take you there. And the story goes on and we see that something is different. Abraham has a lot to learn. A few things go wrong and he starts striving again. Whether that's in Egypt or with Hagar or wherever else. He sometimes loses the plot line. In fact, a lot of people in the story sometimes lose the plot line. They sometimes go chasing after the wind. Like this group of brothers. There was a lot of them. Well, one of them had a color coat. And they didn't like that his identity seemed to be more firmly fixed than theirs. So they went chasing after an identity of their own. They tried to get rid of this one. They sold Joseph off. They thought, maybe if I can just advance up the ladder a little bit. Joseph's gone. We all move up a rung, right? So they sent him away. It's actually God's grace that Joseph wasn't killed. One of the brothers speaks up. Says, we, sh we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him. But God used it for good. He actually used it to keep his people safe. These people who kept striving all the time. We're a long way from home. 
They were in Egypt. And their numbers were growing. And there's this guy named Pharaoh who thought that was kind of a threat. So he, he put the clamps down on these people. He oppressed them. You know, if you can step on someone else's back, you're up a little higher, right? And Pharaoh belongs at the top of the pyramid, we're told. That's what he believes. So he's crushing these people. He's crushing these people of God. But then God spoke. When God creates, when he brings his people into rest, he speaks. And so he spoke to this one guy named Moses, who is in the desert. He said, Moses, my people can't rest. My people are a long way from home. They're being oppressed, and I, I heard their cry. I want you to go with me because we're going to bring them home. Let's go. So Moses got over himself, and he went. And when he went, he spoke some words to Pharaoh. He said, listen, you're going to need to let the people of God go. They need to go because they need to hold a festival in the wilderness. They need to worship. You're going to need to let them go so that they can worship. They need to sit still for a while and rest. He says this actually over and over in, in kind of a rhythm. But the king of Egypt says, why are you talking about taking these people away from their work? Get back to work. In fact, he says they're just lazy. And he tells his, his slave drivers, he says, make them work harder. He says, so that they won't hear these lies they're being told. Notice this. He says, make them work so they can't hear from God. Make them work so hard that the only voice they can hear is the slave drivers and the whips on their backs. Don't let them rest. Take away the straw. Make them make as many bricks as they were making before. But don't even give them half a chance of any rest. So the people of Israel went to the Pharaoh. They said, this is hard. You're killing us. And he said, oh, no, 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 you're just lazy. You don't deserve rest. If you could ever just do your work, maybe then you'd be allowed to rest. And so the people hear that voice really loudly. And they think, okay, this is our way out. Let's just work hard enough. We can get out of, of this oppressive situation if we just work hard enough. But God said, no, no, no. What you need is to be relieved of that yoke altogether. That's what God said in Exodus chapter 6. He said, I'm going to set you free from that yoke. Not help you bear that yoke, but set you free from it. I'm going to give you some rest. I'm going to free you from being slaves. He says, I'm going to do that so you can come out here and rest with me and worship me. And you know how the story goes. They go through these plagues. And finally, it's culminating with the last plague. But before the last plague happens, God says to his people, Okay, freedom's coming with the morning. Freedom's coming with the morning. And here's what you're going to need to do to celebrate it. They haven't even left Egypt yet. And he's already talking about celebrations. He's already talking about how you need to pause. You need to sit still. Here's the rhythm I'm giving you. Every year... It's going to come around to this time of year, and you're going to remember. 
You need to remember this on purpose. That I made you on purpose with a purpose. And when you went striving, and when other people striving saddled you with slavery, I set you free. And you can rest that I came after you. I came after you. And so they go out. And then there's this moment where they think, well, this was just a big tease because here's this water in front of us and how are we ever supposed to get past this water before the soldiers behind us, nipping at our heels, take over? And Moses says, haven't you been listening? God intends to set us free. You need only be still. God will do the fighting for us. And they say, okay. And they follow him just a little bit further into this inexplicable highway right through the middle of the water. And you know what the Egyptians said as they start to realize this is not going very well? They said, we better get out out of here. God is fighting for the Israelites. God is fighting on their behalf. The Lord is fighting for them. And so they made it through the water. And you know what the first thing they did was? They sang a song. It's the entirety of chapter 15 of Exodus. Moses and his sister Miriam led them in worship. They worshiped the God who would provide rest for them. And then this God who would provide rest for them gave them a vision for life. We call them the Ten Commandments. And this vision for life was like, no, it's not striving like the Egyptians taught you. It's not a rock scramble. It's not like that. It's stillness. The first three of these commandments, learning how to worship, how to rest in the presence of God. And the fourth, much more direct, much more explicit. Not only will you rest in the presence of God, but you will do it on purpose. Every seventh day, you better stop what you're doing. You better be still. You better have Sabbath with me. This is what I intended from the very beginning. I'm going to reestablish it with you. We're going to have Sabbath together, you and I. Keep it holy. And there's a lot more that comes after the Ten Commandments, a lot more rules that seem like they would be about striving, but they're actually about how to be the community of God in the presence of God. In fact, a lot of space in Exodus is generated or or dedicated to to how to build a tabernacle because God was going to dwell with his people. He's going to tabernacle among them. And he said, you're going to need this color curtain. You're going to need these kinds of ornaments that will remind you of the garden. Because I'm telling you, we're going to make a garden everywhere we go. We're in the middle of the city. We're going to plant a garden everywhere we go. We're going to rest together. And he said, I want you to make sure the tabernacle faces east. Towards the sunrise. You know when you were striving and you were postured away from me? You know when you were on that rock scramble and you were, you were working so hard for an identity that you could not find apart from me? You know how you were headed east? I'm going to welcome you home from the east. My gates are open towards you. My gates are open to you. You're welcome home to my presence. This is something that Jesus knew full well. And he actually talks about it. Luke chapter 15, one of the more famous stories Jesus ever told, is called the prodigal son. About a son who was striving, who was chasing after the wind. Uh, In pleasure, apparently, was his go-to mode. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tells us even that's a chasing after the wind. But this one, he finally did come to his senses. He said, I need to be in my father's house. 
All this chasing after the wind is not going to do it. I need to be in my father's house. So, so his posture changed. And he actually has a speech already in his head. It's a pretty humble speech. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll even be a servant in your house if you just welcome me home. But he can't get the speech out of his mouth. Because the father has left the gates behind. I imagine these gates were facing eastward. And the father runs out to the prodigal son. He said, welcome home. My son was dead and now he's alive again. All that striving he was doing. But here he can be still. So they have a celebration. A rhythm of rest already taking root. God celebrates, and he's still with his people. He rests with his people. But there's one guy. He doesn't want to go in. He doesn't want to go to the party. He's the older brother. You know why he doesn't want to go to the party? He says, I've been working so hard. I put everything I've got into this work. And I don't feel like I got what I deserved out of the work I was doing. Why is my identity not fixed I was doing so much good work. But he needed to read Ecclesiastes too. Because Ecclesiastes says the same thing about work that it does about striving after pleasure. It says, that's a chasing after the wind, kids. Everything under the sun is a striving after the wind. What is this under the sun that the teacher tells us about in Ecclesiastes? It means everything apart from God. Everything that begins and is postured away from God is a striving after the wind, under the sun, with, without God in mind. But beyond the sun, there's one who's waiting, who's willing to fight on our behalf. Yeah, the older brother needed to have read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where the teacher says that he hated life because the work that is done under the sun is so grievous. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Or, or maybe, maybe better yet, maybe he should have or needed to listen to the words of Jesus. Like in, in, like in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus says, Man is not made for the Sabbath. Man's not made for scrambling to achieve rest at the end of a long week. The Sabbath was made for man. This rhythm is good for you. It was evening, and it was morning, the first day, through the sixth day, but not the seventh day. When you get to the seventh day of creation, it does not say it was evening and it was morning the seventh day, because God's rest is endlessly available, if we would only be still. Yeah, I think the older brother should have done some reading or some listening. He should have listened to the one who says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Let's get rid of the yoke of Egypt. That's not the yoke I have in mind for you. That is a chasing after the winds. Take my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light. I have rest in mind for you. In fact, I will go anywhere to accomplish it for you on your behalf. Just like I did through the Exodus and I did all the fighting, I'm going to do it again. This time on the cross. And just before the Sabbath, 
his arms stretched out wide. When all the work was done, Jesus said, It is finished. So that we could have Sabbath rest. Enduring that darkness so that we could have rest. Enduring the work so our burden could be light. And then the author of Hebrews draws us to our attention. That there's a Sabbath rest available for us. It says this, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 4. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Sounds a little counterintuitive, but I think all we're saying here is, let's, let's do this on purpose. Let's, let's remember the work that God has done. Let's do that on purpose. So we can enter his Sabbath rest. Because here's the deal. The Sabbath is not actually just an emptying. It is. It's an emptying of self and, and, and our strivings. And it's an emptying of selfishness. But the Sabbath is full of life. God fills everything. Ephesians chapter 1 says that Jesus fills everything in every way. And he fills the Sabbath with beauty and hope and rest. And so what would they do? They would take a meal together. What would they do? They would read the scriptures together. What would they do? They would tell the stories about how God had fought on their behalf together. What would they do? They would pray. How would they enter into God's rest? Well, we call those the spiritual disciplines. The ways that we enter into God's rest. The rest that he has accomplished on our behalf. We enter into them by focusing our attention on the fact that it's Him that provides rest and nothing else. So, we turn our eyes towards Jesus and we notice something about Him. We notice that He had immersed Himself in the Scriptures. We started there in Mark chapter 1 and we noted that when He was in the desert, fasting, by the way, in the desert, every word that poured forth from His mouth was Scripture. He was immersed in the story of God. I mean, he told the story, but he's also immersed in it, right? When he called Matthew, he said, you're going to follow me, but first we're going to have a meal together. Let's celebrate. My son, who was a long way off, is home again. Let's rest first. Let's be together first. Mark chapter 5, he raises this little girl to life. He says, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the first thing he says is, get this girl something to eat. Let her rest a little bit. Actually, on the way to healing the little girl, there's a woman who had no rest for so many years. She had this, this bleeding disorder. She couldn't rest. She grabbed his cloak, and finally she was healed. And Jesus calls attention to it. And it sounds kind of embarrassing because he's kind of caught her on the spot. But you know what he was doing? He's restoring her to community. Because everyone knows, okay, for the last decade, this woman has been unclean. And Jesus said, don't you dare call unclean what I have called clean. Don't you dare. She's a part of my community. 
He restored her to community. What we watch is Jesus doing these things on purpose, entering into the rest of the Father on purpose. And we notice that the early church did it too. The early church celebrated the Sabbath. It's true, they, they did move the, the day to the first day of the week. The early church immersed in Scripture. The early church joining in worship. What Paul says, keep on singing those spiritual songs. Keep going. The early church meeting in community probably every day, actually. And we hear from Paul, don't give up meeting together, as you're in the habit of doing. The early church prays. <laughs> you know that they actually prayed three times a day on purpose. And then Paul says, on top of that, you better just breathe prayers. You better just pray ceasing, without ceasing. Let's just keep doing that. The early church fasted. Several times a week, actually. Not because they were doing the work, but because they were teaching their soul that the work had already been done. That what they needed most, what they needed to hunger and thirst after most was the presence of God. Maybe it's the words of Cain that echoed in their ears that being without God is a punishment that none of us can bear. So like Jesus, they went into solitude. And by doing this, they placed themselves in the flame. The ancients talked about the spiritual disciplines this way. They said, it's like we're pieces of iron, and we've just got to place ourselves in the flame of God. What happens to iron when it's placed in the flame? It takes on the attributes of the flame. When it's resting in the right place, it begins to glow. Like last week, we said... Jesus is the light of the world, and he's given himself to you. The, the, the iron becomes hot, taking on the attribute of the flame. The iron can be molded into shape. The, the, the iron is purified, becomes stronger than before, all because the iron was resting in the right place. This being in the right place, this emphasis on being with God, led to a becoming that is glorious. It's a being and then a becoming. Because you can only be loved into changing. Self-loathing will not change you. Being sore afraid will not change you. Work will not change you. Only being in the presence of the one who says, I made you on purpose with a purpose so that we could rest together, you and I, and then bring light to the world together, you and I. You can only be loved into changing, so we must place ourselves in the flame, in the flame of the one who loves us. Like the disciples, we got to just get in the boat. They got in the boat, and there was fear, and there were waves, and there were all kinds of things clamoring for their attention. And they did one thing right. They went to Jesus. <laughs> I'm so proud of them for being in the boat. You know where they were going, actually? Across the water to where the Gentiles lived. To, to these ten villages where there was lots of pigs and cemeteries and unclean people. And man alive, they got in the boat. They said, where are you going? I'm going too i got to be with you. You're the place that rest is found. 
I think maybe we should turn our eyes that direction more and more purposefully. Let's get in the boat this week. Let's remember again that in the midst of any storm of life, rest is found in Jesus. Let's think about maybe on purpose this week, layering in another spiritual discipline, praying on purpose, or being hungry on purpose, or being in community on purpose, or immersing ourselves in the scripture on purpose. Whatever we do, let's make sure we're placed in the right flame, the flame of God's love. All those others are just a chasing after the wind. There's one flame worth being immersed in. Let's immerse ourselves there.